Alright, so welcome to Pose of the Book Club. This week we're going to be taking another break from Capital to take on an underrated Mao text called Unprotracted War. So let's start off with some introductions. Everybody can say their name, their pronouns, and uh, what's some organizing work you're doing right now. And if you're not doing any organizing work, what kind of stuff are you hoping to do in the future? My name is Connor. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm having a bit of a break from organizing at the moment because I moved away from the city which I was organizing in. So I'm now in rural England, but I have just heard back from the YCL. So hopefully getting involved with them a little bit more as, as time goes on. The YCL is the Youth Communist League in the UK. I'm Alex. Uh, I'm again present for the Mao Zedong readings. Uh, pronounce they them. Well, I, I'm actually right now at the very first stages of organizing in the sense that uh, organizations right now in Bulgaria, ML organizations are basically non-existent. So I will probably have to first kind of get in contact with anarchists. Uh, most of the biggest left-wing groups are dealing with prison abolition and the like because uh, what we form here is very important, but they are tending to be uncom. But I'll have to get in communications, essentially, which isn't really organizing, I suppose, but that's it. Cool. This is Ani. I use any pronouns. Um, I finally joined a socialist party, so I have so many more things to do right now. I'm very excited and happy to be in that. And uh, uh, I'm not saying... I have, I have to start maintaining like several different pseudonyms for different levels of anonymity, uh, so I won't say what, but I did... Have my first article posted up for the paper this year. Nice. Congrats on that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's great. All right, and I am Andrew, he, him pronouns. Um, currently, I'm kind of freelance a bit. I, I keep in contact with the local John Browns, and I, you know, I, I have a couple friends who are uh, PSL members who I do some work with, but I don't do any uh, above-board organizing currently. I'm just kind of bouncing from little revolutionary group to revolutionary group, just chatting and seeing what everybody's about and helping out where I can. So uh, I'm Jess. I use they, them pronouns. Organizing-wise, I am a member of the IWW. I um, work with Food Not Bombs, just not the last few weeks because I've been busy. And um, I just applied to be a member of PSL as well. Oh my god, and, wow. Yeah, so, uh, but I'm applying for PSL in Colorado, and I have not yet moved there. So that is a, a future, but also present plan. So I guess we'll see. I don't know. I also, like, put my voice on recordings apparently too, too often um, as part of, of, like, not over the board. Um, socialist organizing, I guess. Cool. So we can get right into the episode. This week we took on an underrated Mao text called On Protracted War, in which Mao is kind of spelling out the entire contradictions, forces that will affect the outcome of the Japanese invasion of China. Um, this 
text was written in May of 1938, and I know that not everybody had fun with it because some of it can be very repetitive. So before we get into the contents of the text, I was just going to give some context um, in terms of the historical situation at this point. So some of the more famous texts are Mao's like On Practice and On Contradiction, where he spells out like the importance of identifying what contradictions are important at a given point. And in fact, Bad Mouse and Red Menace just recently covered On Contradiction, so I'd really recommend that if uh, any of you want to know more about that. It's a really good way to understand dialectics, but... What we find at this point is that the primary contradiction in Chinese society is the Japanese invasion. So whereas prior to this particular war, there had been a long-standing civil war between um, the Communist Party of China and the Kuomintang, which was the national bourgeoisie of China, um, there was a temporary alliance formed at this point, as the primary contradiction shifted from being between uh, capitalists and communists over to you know people who want a chinese national identity versus people who want china to be a colony of japan or whatever else i've actually found this text to be like extremely inspirational and useful in analyzing my own like workplace union organizing work uh, mao goes to pretty much spell out what are the basic contradictions that are going to determine the outcome of the war what will the different phases of the war be who is going to win and how are they going to win? And at which stages uh, should we do certain things? So it's an, an amazing amount of foresight that Mao presents here. Again, remembering that this is 1938, and the Japanese occupation of China was like a pretty long-standing affair. I forget exactly how long. Um, I think they were about 10 months into it when he wrote the book. Right, right. Yeah, so this was written about 10 months in, and Mao is addressing... He's kind of placing this work in contradiction to two errant theories. One is the idea that China is going to lose the war for sure, because how could we possibly win? Japan has a much more developed army. They have more weapons. We have no chance of this. So, in fact, we should just give in as soon as possible and hope to um, get concessions and have fewer losses from conceding as soon as possible. So that's a theory of like national subjugation, like we had no chance of winning. And the other theory he's dealing with is uh, the theory of quick victory, which is, oh, these stupid Japanese invaders, whatever, we, uh, we're legit and we're going to go and beat them because we're better than them. So uh, we're going to go push hard and kick these Japanese invaders out of our country as soon as possible. Uh, so Mao takes issue with both of these lines, both of the theory of national subjugation and of the theory of quick victory. And instead he presents his theory of protracted war here. Now, on the topic of protracted war, we're, this is, we're not going to get into like the details of it, but when we talk about protracted war, this like gets synthesized by Maoists in, I think, Peru a couple decades later with the idea that like protracted war is a universality of like communist struggles. Um, there is a difference between stuff that Mao writes and Maoism. It, it's kind of a silly difference. Like it's, it's silly that we have to think about things uh, in this sort of way, but uh, know that over here Mao is applying his idea of protracted war to a very specific context. What you do with that analysis, people have disagreements of later. Yeah, one thing I found really interesting about um, the way he lays out the theory of subjugation versus uh, the theory of quick victory that he's trying to detract from is how they both kind of stem from the same idealistic failure in that mm. those who believe in the theory of subjugation have this 
um, kind of poor appraisal of the power of the Japanese, and they purely look at them and say they're great and we're not, and we will lose. And in a similar vein, um, the people who believed in the theory of a quick victory did the same to themselves just in reverse order. They said, we are great, they are a joke, and there's no way that we could do this other than a quick victory. So it's interesting how the two main points of um, uh, the two main problems that Mao has to combat in this initial struggle both stem from kind of the same idealistic appraisal of what power is in a military and like societal sense. Uh, sorry, but didn't he actually kind of critique them on the, well, okay, so I think he called one of the theories mechanistic while the other wasn't exactly appraising well enough the situation. Yeah, he definitely does lay out that there are some pretty stark differences between um, these two wrong theories as he describes them. And I, I realize I maybe should have given like some, some bigger historical context as well. Uh, to give you an idea of like the broader Chinese history in which this is taking place, um, the Communist Party of China was founded in somewhere in the 1920s, I forget exactly when. The first people to be overthrown was the Qing Dynasty, which was a sort of comprador bourgeoisie that was in charge of China, where China was pretty much being led in accordance with like the desires of foreign capital and foreign imperialist powers. After that dynasty was revolted against, we had a period of nationalist China being led by a party called the Kuomintang. Uh, the Kuomintang is actually still active in Taiwan nowadays. Um, where the Kuomintang split from the Chinese Party, Chinese Communist Party, and betrayed them, and I forget it was 1926 or 1927. Um, and this started a period of long civil war between the Mao-led communists and the nationalist Kuomintang who were in charge in China. Um, they formed their temporary alliance once the Japanese invaded, but there were still divisions among their ranks, of course. Um, after the Japanese were booted out, the civil war resumed, ultimately resulting in the victory of the Chinese Communist Party in 1949 and the establishment of the PRC. Okay, so, all right, I'm sorry for this probably really basic question, but doesn't the revolution begin up with the civil war? Yeah, I, I would say you're right. I would say this is, the whole thing is a revolutionary period. It's a very long revolutionary period of like 30 years. For a wider international historical context, it's written in, I think, about 1938. So, um, yeah, I guess Europe and other parts of the world are on the brink of World War II. As he mentions later on, kind of hoping to get support from the Soviet Union, it's obviously something they couldn't um, they couldn't do so much as they were ramping up production, uh, preparing for the war. Yeah, and uh, at other points, Mao references the fascist rising and even says that fascism is war. Yeah, and about what you were saying earlier about um, how he kind of defines them as the two categories of of erroneous views, and he he say he states how. Um, one of the groups uh, suffers from, well, they both suffer from an idealistic appraisal. And what brings them to their uh, erroneous views, as he calls them, is an idealist and mechanistic tendency. And the two categories that he lays out of erroneous views are the fundamental and consistent errors, which are hard to correct, and the accidental and temporary errors, which are much easier to correct. Okay, so I think we can then get into the meat of Mao's analysis. And Andrew... Have some notes prepared on this. 
so you want me to just jump right into like uh, the why a protracted war section? I can do that. Yeah, does that sound good to everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Go ahead. All right. So the first thing that Mao really kind of lays out when he starts talking about why to go with a protracted war versus assuming it'll be a quick victory or or otherwise, or to just um, capitulate to national subjugation, is that he understands that there is a difference in in strength between the two nations. He describes Japan as a relatively small nation with a lot of uh, imperialist military power. And China is a semi-feudal, semi-colonial nation with a small military power. So there's a, there's a distinct difference in structural preparedness for war between the two nations. And really where this idea of a quick victory comes from a lot of the time is that the, the Chinese people see, see themselves as there's so many of us, we're this great large nation, and there's so few of them. And, and that is a very important aspect when you're looking at the difference in power dynamics. Um, despite the fact that China is much smaller and much less militarily prepared, this vast expanse of territory that they live on and the large numbers of people who live in it provide a, an infinite resource for revolutionary struggle, as, as Mao sees it. So... The first thing he really gets into there is really dissuading the appraisals of, of what military strength is versus what the strength of the people is. He explains how the expansion of anti-Japanese forces, both nationally and internationally, are totally contingent on success. So after he, he lays out why a protracted war, he gets into the stages of protracted war, which is a really interesting section because... This is where he takes all of these um, objective analyses of, of the material conditions of both of these nations, Japan and China, and applies them to, to how a conflict should play out between the two. And the reason he says protracted war versus going for, like, say, an all-out war of attrition or, a, um, or positional warfare, as he describes it, is because that they don't have the materials or the, the people prepared enough for themselves to get into this large decisive battle and he says at multiple points in this that they really need to avoid these large decisive battles that they're not sure that they can win and that they should only take place or take part in positional warfare when they know the conditions of it are favorable to themselves so he describes it as being a three-phase process of protracted war and step one is um, the enemy's strategic offensive and our strategic defensive and this is the stage in which He's allowing the brutality and the ugliness of the Japanese war on the Chinese people to really expose the contradictions between them and bolster the ranks of the people who are willing to join the anti-Japanese and anti-fascist forces. So uh, step one is very much about not overextending yourself and allowing the material conditions to play out in a way that is conducive to building your own revolutionary force. And then he moves on to stage two, uh, which is the enemy's strategic consolidation and our preparation for counteroffensive. So by the time stage two comes into effect, he's started to build his guerrilla forces and he has a firm command over the established military. And this is where they're really starting to consolidate themselves and prepare for the decisive war that we all kind of think of when we, we think of revolution. And then stage three is when you move on to the strategic counteroffensive and the en enemy's strategic retreat. So 
where he breaks it down into these three sections of how you build up your revolutionary forces while using highly mobile warfare and guerrilla warfare to combat a large, fast-paced um, military whose goal is an outright and quick annihilation of your forces. So um, the main purpose, uh, or just to give it a, a good heading, is that he does not want to get into a quick, decisive battle because that's an obvious loss from the standpoint of an unprepared force. But by taking their time to build up their forces, they can use the advantage of their vast territory and their larger numbers of population to use that militarily further down the line. Yeah, he says, uh, the first stage will be fought primarily by mobile war and guerrilla units rather than positional warfare put forth by the Kuomintang. And the second stage is uh, strategic stalemate and the bolstering of forces using the initial successes as a tool. The second stage is a transitional phase of war. This is where they go from being the less militarily powerful force and building up um, the, the people's uh, will to fight. And then they can finally move on to stage three, which is the engagement with the Japanese in an all-out war. I think it's interesting that he seems to frame it as like it's all or nothing for the Japanese in this situation. I think he says that they're in decline, whereas China are in ascension. And so for them, it's all about biding their time and waiting for the enemy to make their, make their mistakes and then kind of capitalizing on them. Yeah, because Japan, despite being stronger, they had limited resources, obviously less people. And I think the longer that um, the anti-Japanese United Front could drag out the war, the better it was going to, to end for them. Yeah. Uh, so I felt like reading this was almost like um, reading Che's take on guerrilla warfare, um, but like applied to a really large country. Um, so I felt like it was really easy to to like relate to being in such a gigantic country where we hear things like we're so big of course we'll win and things like that so um i didn't really have much to add on that except for that reading it just felt so much like what if che but giant country and uh yeah i i would definitely recommend reading uh che's takes on the same the same type of action i'm sure you read this if the times line up properly Right. I mean, it was written in 37. No, uh, 38, I think. Yeah, so after he, uh, he kind of lays out uh, why protracted war, and he explains the material conditions that, that make it a necessity, and also what needs to be do uh, done to build up these forces, he, um, he moves on to really hyper-analyze like, what exactly is protracted war and, and how does it look and the important things that he has to define at this point are uh, like what is guerrilla warfare what are the purposes of guerrilla units what are what are the, the purposes of regular main forces and then also um, understanding the differences between things like uh, a war of attrition versus a war of annihilation so there's actually a couple really big definitions that come up over the next uh, few sections um, on the topic of, like, why it is that Japan has to fight their war in a specific way, I found it really interesting because Mao was talking about how the contradictions in Japan are increasingly tightening. And the only way that they're resolving their contradictions is to conquer more and more territory. So on the one hand, you have this, like, Japanese front that has to 
fully advanced in order to continue to feed their like imperializing country they need to keep on taking more and more um so he starts off knowing exactly what the approach is what are the contradictions underpinning japan's advance in the first place and that's why japan isn't going to do maybe like a slow protracted a way that might have actually led to victory for them the other thing is that like we should read this text obviously not as a way to like enact protracted war in our circumstance rather we should look at this as an application of marxism leninism and a way that he can take this analysis and what are the strengths of analyzing this way so to me the big thing is the fact that he's able to take time into account effectively so you know it's not just that like oh either the chinese people have will to fight the japanese or they don't but rather what are the factors that affect the will of the chinese people and how those factors over time so in fact at one point he concedes that like oh the japanese could actually go and take half of china and the remainder of china could all be like we could temporarily lose half of our territory we would still eventually win the war because if japan takes half of the chinese territory they have to maintain half of the chinese territory they have to deal with the economic the politics that half of their territory so it's not as simple as like oh you slowly win the country bit by bit but rather there's a lot of factors underlying that expose weaknesses and the imperialist front that Mao is exploit yeah it's honestly looking back you kind of think what were they thinking trying to take control of china like when you look at Mao's analysis it seems like it's almost impossible for them to have succeeded but that's what he was saying the chinese should not be thinking <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I like how when he's saying about um, how people were thinking, oh, we're going to win, it's going to be really easy. He's like, well, you're, you're right, but you're also wrong. It's going to be difficult, but we will win. I think he said at least numerous times that the struggle will be very long and painful. And, you know, he was right. Yeah, and I think people do this with America, too, thinking that because America is, like, huge and has such a military and huge economic apparatus that it's unbeatable, but... You know, the more you look at details of it, it's like capital has to constantly expand and to constantly expand, it opens itself up to like points of weakness. Like capital will inherently overstretch itself. I would like to point out uh, the, the three uh, conditions for success that Mao lays out. And I think that's in his, uh, is that in his, yeah, it's in his interview with Edgar Snow in 1936. And when he's talking about like the, the three main things that he thinks need to happen in order for there to be a Chinese success over the Japanese occupying forces, he says that they need to establish an anti-Japanese united front in China, which they do successfully. And they need to establish an anti-Japanese international united front, which eventually happens as well. But one thing that didn't happen was the rise of a revolutionary movement in Japan and its colonies. I mean, in its colonies, that certainly did happen. But in, in Japan itself is something that never really came to happen because they were actually crushed by another imperialist power um, vis-a-vis America. Okay, so at one point in the text, Mao spells out that the three primary contradictions that will uh, decide the outcome of the war is A, the will of the Chinese people versus the will of the Japanese people. B, is the military preparedness and equipment of the Chinese Japanese. And lastly, is the international support on both sides so what i found really interesting of the note of like uh revolutionaries within japan is that even if there was no revolution in japan that was still a factor like maybe there were actions that japan could have taken that they were not able to take 
because of certain amounts of resistance. Um, and we see that every day, like even in America, America's not as bad as it could be because there are people doing like local politics and local charities and like doing these small little fights that keep it at a certain point where it could not be as ruthless as possible. So even though that contradiction did not necessarily determine the outcome of the war, it still played a factor. All right. So um, do you want me to pick right up with uh, the section on fighting for perpetual peace? I thought that was a really interesting and kind of uplifting section. Sure. Yeah, I like that one. I had, I had one more thing, actually, which was on Abyssinia. Um, oh, yeah. So something I found that was like a really interesting example I saw here where it's like, yeah, it's not about whether we're going to win or lose because Mao already knows that they're going to win. It's simply about how many people are going to die for us to win in the meantime. And the fact that like he's able to take a step back and look at it in such a broad way and know that there's always going to be resistance of some degree. And this is where he draws the example of Abyssinia, where it's like, and Abyssinia, I, I don't know the exact details. I think it's another name for Ethiopia. Or Yeah, that's right. It was the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. Right. So uh, he brings up Abyssinia to talk about why, like, positional warfare is a foolhardy. So whereas the Kuomintang wants to do traditional warfare because they're not imaginative enough to do other forms of defense against the Japanese, he brings up the Abyssinian defense to show, like, oh, they did what they've always known to do, which is set up trench lines, dig your heels in, and fight off the invaders. And they got crushed. Um, so on the one hand, he uses that as an example to say, like, oh, it's important to adapt to your current material conditions and uh, like adjust your strategy according to them because there is always an for what you can do to succeed. But on the other hand, he says, even though Abyssinia got crushed, there are still Abyssinians. There are still people who want a free, sovereign Abyssinia who are continuing to fight guerrilla warfare and are still like attacking the invaders, attacking the occupiers. So it's like... Even if everything goes wrong, there as long as there's one person standing, as long as there's even an inkling of energy to resist oppression, there's always going to be a path forward to do it. Yeah, I like that. It's never about winning or losing. It's just continually changing conditions and how you react to them. Right. Like some people in my office say, like, "Oh, like we're not ready for a union. Like people don't, uh, people don't want a union here." And it's like, well, we're not trying to build a union today. We're trying to build a union tomorrow. So what does that tomorrow look like? And because we know what it has to look like, we can actually identify the work that's pressing today. All right. So moving on to the section on fighting for perpetual peace, one of the first things he says is that the current war is a continuation of the crisis of capital highlighted by the First World War. And I think that's a really interesting observation of how we, we transitioned from this, the, the first imperialist war to uh, uh, World War II and how it really was a continuation of these contradictions within capital itself that were irreconcilable to the point where it produced fascism. And then capital was kind of forced to confront itself in a, in a small way during the Second World War. Whereas in the First World War, it was more of just an imperialist power versus imperialist power. Since by the time of the Second World War, we had nations like the USSR that were fighting for what Mao calls a just cause, it brings about a new dynamic to uh, the future. And this is what he's talking about when he's talking about fighting for perpetual peace, is the difference in, in ideals between those fighting for the forces of capital and those fighting for imperialism and those who are fighting for uh, the betterment of all the people around them. 
So I think it's really interesting how he, he makes this kind of idealist or, or this distinction of ideals between the two groups that actually kind of lays the groundwork for their own success or failure. Yeah, I really loved how he mentions earlier on in the work. He says the existence of the Soviet Union is a particularly vital factor in present day international politics. And the Soviet Union will certainly support China with the greatest enthusiasm. There was nothing like this 20 years ago. Like it's a, it was a complete game changer having a, an international power fighting for good or for the workers. Also, for more historical context on that, like, uh, actually earlier in the Chinese Communist period, there was a lot of collaboration with the Soviet Union, but the Soviet Union wanted them to take positional warfare in their protracted war, like back in the 20s, uh, against what Mao said. Because Mao was like, we have guerrilla warfare, why do we need to do this positional warfare shit to work? Ultimately, their forces got routed, and then Mao was like, see, y'all Soviet Union shit don't know shit about what to do here. And they were like, well, fuck you, we're not helping you. And then they left. And then Mao became leader of the Communist Party again. So while he did found the party, he was, he stopped being the leader at one point because uh, under the guidance of the Soviet Union, they went in the wrong direction. And then he re-won the support of the party over the course of the long march and continued to lead it through on past, like, the Japanese invasion and so on. Yeah, I think he led the, the party for a good 30 years or so after this was written. Yeah. Oh, also, was this the period where you're talking about, like, the Japanese invasion is an unjust war. The Chinese defense of Chinese territory is a just war. And because our war is just and their war is unjust, we will have international support and they will not. Yeah, and even um, internal support within Japan, as you mentioned earlier. If people in the country knew what they were doing outside of their country, they started to lose support within Japan as well. Obviously, it didn't eventually lead to a revolution. It, it's probably still affected their forces in some way. And I think also he mentions the people in China who are invading China for Japan. Even those people were becoming demoralized. Yeah, and that goes back to how Lenin describes in What is to be Done, that there needs to be resistance on all sides. And this is really like a condemnation of left communism, where it's like, you know, just because you're not going to get a win through bourgeois democracy does not mean that you need to disregard bourgeois democracy. But rather, like, there is still struggle there. There are still people fighting there. It's about an allocation of resources. So maybe you won't have a revolution in Japan, but that resistance still counts for something. And we should resist on all sides to the point that it's useful. So Lenin never says to, like, throw out one form of, re uh, one form of resistance for another, but rather to look at all the different places that resistance can happen and to plan your resources according to what makes sense. So... The next few sections that we get into, he kind of starts um, really analyzing war itself and how you prepare for war and how you actually act out on, on making war against an enemy. So one of the first things he really uh, starts to define here is, is man's dynamic role in war. And one of the things he kind of shows us is that man's function in war is the realization of ideals into action or uh, the transformation of the subjective into the objective through actions. So what he means by man's dynamic role in war is he's talking about the way the people act out on ideals that are spread and through the acting out of ideals, they become material and real. 
that's an interesting place to start when he gets into the next section about how war is politics. It's, it's, it's the section called War and Politics. And he says, war is inseparable from politics. War is the continuation of politics by other means. War is the political policy in Fast Forward. And politics is war without bloodshed, while war is politics with bloodshed. I, I thought I, I really enjoyed that last quote, just because it's such a an honest analysis of of how our politics function. And after that, he gets into the uh, political mobilization for the war of resistance, which is where you take these political ideals and you you give them out to the masses, and that mobilizes the people to fight. So he he starts talking about how um, telling the army and the people about uh, the political aim of war so that they understand that not just that there is one, but why we're doing it and what we're doing it for, which is to drive out Japanese imperialism and to build a new China um, that is free and equal. And then he goes on to say that it's not enough to just explain the goals, but to show them how we plan to accomplish those aims. And that's where this whole document kind of lies in explaining why we need to use the, the practice of, of protracted war versus um, the other contending ideals. I just found this whole, um, I guess the whole text and the whole of Mao's writing really interesting because it's not something you really see nowadays is a political leader who is taking time to really explain concepts to the people who he's leading because they want them to understand. It's really, I mean, most countries, I guess, are led through coercion, which is... Um, yeah, I guess it's just the state of the world at the moment. But it's really interesting to see someone go through point by point saying, this is what we need to do. This is how it's going to apply to your, li- apply to your life. And yeah, this is why we need to do it and how it's going to happen and what will happen afterwards. I agree. Um, I feel like most of us felt like the text was, this one specifically was really repetitive. But like you said, it's really clear that he just really wants us to understand it or, you know, not us specifically, but, you know, wants wants his audience to understand the material and not just that he wants them to like hear it. He wants them to understand it and get it. That is super refreshing. Yeah. And because it's vital as well. Uh, I think he mentions like he needed everyone in the country to understand this. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked the way it needed to work. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And this goes back to dialectics where... Like, that's a, okay, we encountered this when we were reading Capital, where it was like, well, how can all this different labor be tied down to the same fundamental thing of money? And it's like, well, the reason it's tied down to the same thing is because it's tied down to the same thing. The arguments are circular and kind of like tautological at some point, where it's like, things make sense because they make sense. And because of that, it's difficult to build up some of the things gradually. But like, the relevance to here is that, you know, we're not just talking about the dialectics, like the dialectical processes that determine the outcome of the war, but also like the dialectics between the the text of describing how to do the war versus the war itself, or like the relationship between your own time and your ability to write, or how you write versus how people will take that. At the end of the day, everything comes down to people doing things or not doing things. So even to the point of like, all of your organizing tactics and your organizing strategy, it all comes down to the same basic thing, which is, are you going to succeed a revolution or not? Yeah, I agree. It's a really thorough analysis. It's really interesting to see how wide his scope was, like how, how well he understood the, the whole situation of the country at the time, from the military to political implications of the invasion, and also yeah, how it affected the people on the ground as well. 
It really is so refreshing that there's a materialist analysis of how to go forward in a conflict where we're so used to just like, I don't know, like bravado and assumption and like, for lack of better terminology, like most like pre-war talk is like a pissing contest. And that's all it really is. But it turns out there's actually like a reasonable and logical way to approach international conflict um, that's not so much just pulling things out of the air and hoping they work. It's about applying the actual conditions that will make a difference and not wasting time or energy or ruining people's lives in the process. Yeah, to me, the biggest thing was like Mao was able to like tell the future through <laughs> writing this. Yeah, some of it seems almost common sense now, but I mean, it definitely wouldn't have been at the time. Yeah, he really lays out a, a very kind of fresh new theory on what guerrilla warfare really means when it's applied on such a massive scale. And a lot of the conflicts we've seen in the world since this time have been primarily uh, this style of insurgent fighting. So it, it's something that we're, we're very familiar with, but we never really knew where from. Can you believe that people say that Mao wasn't a Marxist? Just bullshit like that. <laughs> this is so, so... Who says that? People that have never read Mao and just think that because China, things aren't communist. Yeah, white people are wild. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, public opinion of Mao in the, in the West particularly is just so far from reality. It's really, really interesting as soon as you start to read him, you see how how odds it is with reality. Like of him being some kind of brutal dictator who killed a lot of people. Right. I mean, one of the quotes here is talking about taking Japanese soldiers as prisoners of war. He's saying we should understand rather than hurt their pride and channel it in the proper direction and by treating prisoners of war leniently. Lead the Japanese soldiers to see the anti-popular character of the aggression mm. committed by the Japanese rulers. Like he's wanting to teach people that what they're doing is wrong and to stop. And I think he says it's not about annihilating the enemy in terms of killing every one of them it's like disarming them making them unable to attack you anymore and kind of proceeding from there yeah it's like stopping all further fights from happening and that's how you preserve the most life yeah like that that i feel like is the marxist application to all conflict is like how do i make sure that we stop having this conflict so nobody continues to get hurt and how do we make sure the least amount of people get hurt in the process while we're doing that and on that note, like, I was complaining on Twitter today that there's, like, MLs who are arguing with people to win arguments when it's, like, no, like, nobody cares about whether you're logically making sense. The fact is, like, we need there to be more communists, and either your actions are going to help create more MLs or hurt there being more MLs. So instead of trying to win arguments in, like, an idealistic, logical way, even if you're making ML arguments, you know, you need to look at, like, what is it going to take to change this person's mind? And what are the arguments you can make that are actually going to affect them? We're not doing things to win points on the internet. We're doing things for the purpose of building up a movement. I mean, hey, if you're wrong, like, then, then you should be proven wrong in an argument. But if you're right, then actually show why you're right. I'm pretty sure I saw your tweet and you were talking about, like, hey, we shouldn't just dunk on Trotskyists. Like, we should actually try to talk to them about why we vary in our thoughts so that maybe we can all understand. And I mean, I'm pretty sure not all of us, or I'm pretty sure most of us have not always been MLs. Like we needed help to understand 
why we needed to broaden our analysis. So I, I did really appreciate that, that, bringing that up, because like, even if we have these variances in like our analysis history, or like, we don't agree with this variance yeah. in theory, we have to be able to talk about why. Mm. Otherwise, like, what are we even doing? How do you even know if you're right if you don't talk about it? Well, it's liberalism. That's it what we, we read uh, last time we read Mao. I mean, this is what he was talking yeah, about in, yeah. in combat liberalism, where he was saying, yeah, we need to constantly struggle against ideas that are incorrect and do not fall in line with the beliefs of the party. But we have to do that in good faith. And when we give criticism in good faith, we also have to take criticism in good faith because it's all in the name of struggling for growth. And if you're just on the internet, uh, like you said, dunking on Trotskyist just for the likes right. and the subscribes, then you're not struggling in good faith and you're not actually trying to build a better, more strong movement. You're just trying to build a better, more strong you via you know, social credit on the internet. Yeah, there's some credit to say that like, you know, antagonizing has some value. But like at the same time, if you antagonize someone, you have to be willing to do the other, the educate and organize with them. So, um, yeah, don't just piss people off to piss people off. Like if you're going to to shock or upset someone, do it so you can have a conversation. But also just try to try to make sure you have conversations. That should be the end goal, not the shocking. Like ML is a rejection of idealism, yet I see so many MLs applying ML in an idealist way, where it's, like, I, I take a step back and I think about right. what are the conditions of the world, and I know that, like, over, as time approaches infinity, everybody's going to become a communist, because there's no other ultimate outcome. So instead, it's like, what are we doing in the meantime? And that's not to say you need to waste your time with every individual you come across with. There's a place for bad faith arguing. When you find a troll, you should troll them back and troll them back harder. But if you are trolling somebody who's actually trying to learn, then you're actively hurting everything and making it harder for other MLs to correct what you've done. Absolutely. Hard agree. And that's another point that, like, on identifying where things are going to go in the long haul, like, that was the biggest lesson I took away from this text, where it's like, the actual possibilities of our organizing are... Like, the set of possibilities is small enough that we can actually just write out every possibility that's going to happen. So I work for, like, a big company where, like, union organizing seems very, like, far off and wild, but it's like, even if we're not ready for a union today, I know that there's going to be a union within 30 years because I see the overall contradictions within the country tightening. I see the overall contradictions within capitalism tightening. So even if things look all peachy keen and as if, like, nobody needs a union right now, I know that that's going to be the case differently within like a longer time span. So by taking all those, like all levels of contradictions into account, I'm able to tune my strategy according to that. So if it came to a point where I knew that like my organizing was going to get wiped out, then instead my strategy would shift to like, what can I leave behind for the future organizers that are going to pick this up? Right. Our goal should be preparing people for the change that's going to happen. Like that, that should really be it. Our job is to talk to people, to teach people, and to make them or help them be re more receptive when change happens. Because it is also my opinion that it's going, it's inevitable to happen whether we like it or not. Um, whether it be the conditions of our social system right now or our actual, you know, material climate conditions that force that to happen, or both, honestly. Yeah, Matt Mo actually has a really nice quote about that, which I think applies equally to 
I guess everywhere in the world as well as it did to China in that particular time. He says the richest source of power to wage war lies in the masses of the people. It is mainly because of the unorganized state of the Chinese masses that Japan dares to bully us. When this defect is remedied, then the Japanese aggressor, like a mad bull crashing into a ring of flames, will be surrounded by hundreds of millions of our people standing upright. The mere sound of their voices will strike terror into him and he'll be burned to death. Damn. <laughs> I'm like, what does that look like in practice? It's like, okay, so Japan invades 80% of the country. Worst case, Japan invades 80% of the country and is occupying it. Like, do you think the remaining 20% is, is, gonna be, is going to be as militant as people are today? No, they're going to be pissed. They're going to see the advancing army right in front of them. They're going to be motivated to fight. And every fight that they win is going to motivate even more fighters because people are, you know, trapped under occupation. So, like, those conditions, even the conditions of motivation change over time. And that's how Mao knows that the war is going to be won. Because even in the case where there's only 20% of China left that's being controlled by, like, that only counts as China, that remaining 20% is going to be militant as fuck. Right, because the material conditions changed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Honestly, it seems like almost clairvoyant sometimes his like how he managed to look into the feel like he was looking into the future just to see what was going to happen and then put it down into paper onto paper. Another thing he said was there are only two possible outcomes to the political situation in Japan. Either the downfall of her entire ruling class occurs rapidly, political power passes to the people and war thus comes to an end, which is impossible at the moment, or her landlord class and bourgeoisie become more and more fascist and maintain the war until the day of their downfall, which is the very road Japan is now traveling. There can be no other outcome. And it's exactly what happened. All right, so we're about halfway through this piece right here. Um, oh my god, you have another half of your notes left? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, let, let, let's get through the rest of the notes, yeah. Yeah, the way, the way he kind of lays this out is what we just covered is a lot of the ideological and theoretical basis for the war. And that's what the first half is really about. He's explaining how he applies uh, a Marxist dialectic and a scientific analysis of the material conditions of both nations to try and get a better understanding of what conflict between the two would look like. And when we're moving on to the second half of, the, of this, uh, I, I guess it's a, an article, technically, uh, it's, it's of this work, he, he starts to really get to what the practical application is and the purpose of war and how that plays out in real time. So this is where we're getting onto the section that is the object of war. And this, uh, this section and the ones that follow it tend to be a little bit drier because it's about laying out what war is, how war is fought, and how specifically uh, they plan to use certain tactics to move forward. So in the first section here, the object of war, he says that the purpose of war is the complete destruction of an enemy and the preservation of the self. And that's not just the purpose of their individual war. This is him speaking very broadly about what war is. And he says that attack and defense are, can basically be symbolized by the spear and the shield. And all modern weaponry and tactics are just extensions of that. The modern rifle is the modern extension of the spear, whereas, say, the bunker or the uh, Kevlar vest or whatever would be the modern extension of the shield. So all war has this dual nature, as uh, we Marxists love coming back to, in that it's they're both kind of going on simultaneously. So that's when he moves on to the next section. Yep. Likes on Twitter are the extension of the sword, while reporting someone to be blocked is the extension of the shield. 
truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the things he gets into uh, here that I found a little bit challenging was um, this concept of exterior and interior lines and offense within defense. And this is where he starts describing the function of the guerrilla forces and how you use them versus the function of your primary regular army forces. The big distinction here is, is what he um, is positional warfare, mobile warfare versus guerrilla warfare. And uh, in this section, he lays out how kind of attack and defense are both constantly ongoing simultaneously. And that while we take a new territory and we push into new ground and we take that, we also need to be prepared to concede that within reason because you can't just fight until you're dead and expect a victory because that's just blindly kind of kicking and punching back out an enemy. He proposes a much more nuanced approach to it in that you need to really recognize the value of a success and the value of failure and how to constantly keep this war machine rolling forward. Because if you spend all your time in a never-ending state of attack, and constantly trying to push, then you will just, you'll end up killing yourself. You'll die. And then in, in the inverse, if you spend your time in a perpetual state of defense and retreat, then you'll end up in a position of national subjugation and loss. So he's really balancing these two forces and coming back to our, you know, the dual nature and the, the dialectics of it to, to make this synthesis of how to use these two concepts simultaneously to move forward with his protracted war. Yeah, I think as Arnie said earlier, in reference to it's not a problem if they take part of your territory, he says we should not grudge a temporary loss of part of our territory, for the temporary loss of part of our territory is the price we pay for the permanent preservation of all of our territory. So I think the key thing here is that there's two tactics, offense and defense, and these are obviously different things. But Mao talks about how, like, the primary contradiction here is that of offense, roughly speaking, which is that, you know, you're never going to end the war by defending. You can only end the war by total annihilation of everybody who's trying to kill you. So in that way, he's able to actually weigh defense against offense in a logical way and therefore decide what is more appropriate at a certain point. That ties back to, like, an element of union organizing that I was dealing with, which like, I was talking to an experienced organizer about how it's like, oh, my God, it's so difficult to get people to show up to things and come and all these things. And it's like, they were like, okay, well, the goal for a union organizing committee is to grow. Like, that is the primary objective. It's to grow constantly until you are half of your workforce. But that doesn't mean that at any given point, the goal should be to grow. Rather, like, this organizer pointed out to me, like, oh, if, it's, if you're having trouble getting people to, like, download a different app to show up to things, like... Do they really care about the work you're doing? And maybe the contradiction then is not that it's like difficult to get them on, but rather that you need to consolidate your organizing force. And that made total sense. So it's like, now I look at it as the goal is to grow my like union organizing group or whatever, but that doesn't mean the goal at every point is to grow and add more people. Maybe at some points the goal is not to grow, but rather to consolidate and think about who we have in front of us and to train skills for the people that are already here. Yeah, that's great advice. So moving on from that section, he gets into a lot of kind of technical jargon that I'm just going to try and define as quickly as I can. Um, the next section is on initiative, flexibility, and planning. He describes initiative as another one of the 
dual nature things. It's initiative versus passivity. It's all about uh, utilizing the dynamic role of man, as he describes it, to exploit the enemy's unpreparedness and to put them in a position of passivity while they take initiative. And, and that's how they kind of establish these positions of superiority versus inferiority uh, militarily, is by taking advantage of opportunity, being active, and by being active militarily, you put them in a position of military passivity. The next word is um, flexibility. And flexibility is what we were just kind of talking about. It's the concrete realization of the initiative in military operations. It's the understanding that sometimes you need to seed ground and sometimes you need to gain ground. And planning is obviously planning. That's, uh, he just goes on to describe the massive importance of being flexible in your plans, but also understanding when they need to be applied uh, more aggressively. So after, he, after that section, he moves on to mobile warfare, positional warfare, and guerrilla warfare. And mobile warfare is regular armies waging quick, decisive, offensive action and campaigns on what he calls exterior lines over large areas of operation. So that's, that's kind of the, the modern, uh, fast-paced uh, sort of lightning war that we're all kind of familiar with where you quickly strike, you take uh, strategic areas, and then you're constantly prepared to withdraw from those areas as a means of, of kind of harassing the enemy. And then guerrilla warfare is irregular troops uh, doing kind of the same thing, but also within smaller areas of operation and holding smaller areas of ground. And like I said, these are irregular troops. So these are, are the insurgent forces and the, and the peasant farming uh, militias that are, are waging a constant campaign of harassment against the Japanese. And then positional warfare, which is the third one, and what he describes as only being used in the final stage of uh, this war, is the occupation and holding of selective territories. And this is like the very old concept of war that we all think of as, I hold this castle, you want this castle, me and my army hold it, you and your army attack it. So that's, that's just a very... Um, simple understanding of positional warfare. And he says, China will not adopt positional warfare as a primary tactic and will use the strategy of mobile and guerrilla warfare primarily. I think it's quite interesting that he decided not to use that tactic. I think on the basis that he assumed that the Japanese would be using it. Like he assumed they would be planning on holding cities and knowing what they could do, what they were going to do. That, that's definitely absolutely what he was thinking. He actually says that at some point where the Japanese, are, their plan of attack was quickly taking areas and holding them and being an occupational force. And if you kind of play into that style of warfare and you attack them with a large decisive force against their large decisive force, that's playing into their hand because that is a, a, a form of attack that they're just not strategically prepared to win. Yeah, he was talking about only going into the battles that they know they're going to win. Yeah. That way they can minimize the losses to themselves. I think he quotes Sun Tzu at one point, the, um, yeah. know the enemy and you know yourself and you can fight 100 battles with no danger of defeat. Yeah, and this whole, this whole latter half of the, uh, the, the, the piece here is actually, it has a very Sun Tzu vibe where he's really trying to, to describe how to best use your military forces and how to be an understanding military leader. And he talks about how they need intelligent and reasonable generals, not generals who are out looking for the fame of the next great victory, you know? Which I think links in back to organizing that we do as well. It's not important to be some famous revolutionary. The important thing is to put in the groundwork and to create the seeds for, for revolution. 
no famous revolutionary has ever set out to become a famous revolutionary. Right. So the final two definitions I want to get into are uh, what is a war of attrition versus what is a war of annihilation. And a war of annihilation is fairly obvious in its verbiage. It's war for the purpose of outright destruction of an enemy and to sap their forces and to decimate them as quickly as possible. Whereas a war of attrition is a long extended war that's primarily for the purpose of harassing the enemy until they're demoralized and can no longer continue. And that's what we kind of understand most guerrilla warfare to be from, you know, the context of, say, the Vietnam War, or the war in Afghanistan is a never ending campaign of of harassment where you don't need these large forces to come out and outright annihilate the enemy. You can over an extended period of time harass them and demoralize them until they can no longer wage the war that they seek to. So this is, we're actually getting into the last few sections here. Uh, that's the big section or the big few sections where he really kind of describes what war is, why it's waged and how they plan to wage it. Then he goes on to a section on the possibility of exploiting enemies' mistakes, which is a, a pretty important uh, military tactic. And he talks about uh, exploiting the enemy's underestimation of you exploiting inadequate troop concentrations, exploiting the lack of communication between enemy uh, army groups, and the failure to gr uh, grasp strategic opportunities. So he's really, he just kind of lays out different ways in which you can, you can see the enemy's weakness and capitalize on them, even when you're not in a position of, of military power. There's two more sections I got. The next section is uh, the question of decisive engagements, which we've already covered pretty thoroughly in the beginning, where he tells us that they could not engage or uh, engage in these large scale battles that would really make or break the revolution early on, that they needed to wage these these smaller victories to build up their forces and and motivate and mobilize uh, the people of China. And then the next section is um, the army and the and the people are the foundation of victory, which uh, transitions nicely from that, where he talks about how um, China must strengthen national unity and speed the rate of social and economic progress to overtake her aggressors with a force equal or greater to their own. So this is, this is the application of the, the slow-moving war, these small victories and the ruthlessness of the enemies to show to the Chinese people but it, it, it's the material conditions that motivate them to move forward with a protracted war. And he says political mobilization is absolutely fundamental to success. Yeah, and then the conclusion section is just a bunch of quotes from all the previous, just kind of nicely putting a bow on uh, what each subsection was about. All right. Um, I've got some discussion questions for us, if that's all of Andrew's notes done. That is it. Okay. What are the three primary contradictions that will determine the outcome of the Japanese invasion of China? Are you talking about his three conditions for success, or...? I think they roughly align with that as well. It's the establishment of an anti-Japanese united front in China, the establishment of an anti-Japanese international united front, and the rise of revolutionary movements in Japan and its colonies. Yep. See, I found, I forgot where in the text it's described, but the way he put it as well, and I think these are analogous, was... The first is the will of the Chinese people and of the people themselves. The second is like the economics and the warfare potential of both countries. And the third is the international support for both of those. No, the ones I say are, are from uh, his Edgar Snow interview, whereas what you're talking about 
actually writes um, in this piece. This is mm. so uh, the Edgar Snow is uh, two years prior to um, this piece. Interesting. Now, the other thing is that you could identify what the three contradictions are, but there is still a hierarchy of contradictions. There is always one contradiction that is primary at any given point. So what is the primary contradiction that's going to determine the outcome of this war? I guess it would be the, the size of the Chinese, at least the potential Chinese army, and the size of the Japanese one. Mm. Yeah, I, I would, the way Mal puts it, I think, is like, I think you're, you're touching on the right thing, which is it's about the will of the people, which is that, like, economics is great, but warfare potential is produced by people. The size of the army is determined by people. So it's really about how committed the people are to the war. So Mao recognizes that even like on the Japanese front, there are going to be people who are pro this invasion, who are like ambivalent towards it and who are opposed to it. And where those ratios break down actually has a big impact on what the ultimate outcome will be. And like you had stated earlier with the hierarchy of contradictions, whereas before the Japanese invasion force came in, the greatest contradiction was that between uh, the Kuomintang and the uh, Communist Party of China. Whereas after the invasion happened, that was no longer the most important contradiction in Chinese society. The new greatest contradiction was that between the Chinese people and the Japanese people, or, or rather the Chinese military and the Japanese military. Yeah, and to borrow from Bad Mouse's video, it's like, even before capitalism, there existed proletariats and bourgeoisie. There existed those who owned the means of production and those who uh, sold their labor. And there was a contradiction between those two people, uh, those two groups of people or those two classes of people. But there was also an aristocracy that was an aristocracy that was uh, oppressing all of those people together. So the contradiction between bourgeoisie and proletariat did not originate with capitalism but it became primary in the course of capitalism and remains primary today. All right. That was all the, the discussion questions I had, but mm. what did y'all think of the, what did y'all think of the text? I know that I, I mean, it's fair that all of you hated it more than I did. I, really <laughs> <love this> <laughs> I, I didn't hate it. I would never say I hated it. Yeah. I like it better now. <laughs> yeah. uh, now that we've talked about it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't as much fun to read through, but I feel like reading through it alone definitely. It's once you've had a chance to talk through it, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a lot more important than it That's seems on, on the right. first read through. And the background information about like what was happening at the time for me that I I was not as knowledgeable about. So talking to you guys about it was really helpful for me to like apply what I was reading to like what was happening at the time. Yeah, and uh, I I think we were discussing this just before the um before the recording started, but that that this was initially laid out as a series of lectures. Like this isn't this isn't an actual piece that was sat down and written as a singular piece, and that's why we were dealing with a lot of repetition and overlap, which to me was was the the biggest struggle through this piece is that every every section begins and ends with uh, laying out the section before and the section after. So there, they, there was a lot of overlap between each uh, subheading, which by the time you got to whatever the 10th or 11th subheading, that got a, bit, a little bit maddening, but it was still like the information within it is phenomenal. Yeah, I think that it says in the beginning that this was a series of lectures over like a 
of of talking. So over like I mean, a water I also talking? think that's kind of like a full month, like from May to June. If only David Harvey would do lectures on the protecting world <laughs> capitalism. Uh, based on his takes on China, I don't think it would be that great. Yeah. I have not seen his takes on China. He think China bad. Oh, no. Yeah. It looks like China is doing a pretty good job of uh, applying what they're... Uh, Applying their goals and their material conditions in a way that can uh, lead them towards socialism. Well, someone posted a really good article today. It's from the Guardian, which was quite surprising. So, oh yeah, it's about how the states the state runs businesses in China, and it's funny because it's obviously rapidly anti-communist, but the actual content of it is quite interesting to see. Yeah, how the how the Chinese state is becoming more and more involved in private businesses. Yeah, I've I've read a, a few excerpts of Z, and I I really am a big fan of the way he writes. So I I kind of want to get into some some more modern works from them. So I guess for the last section, we can kind of talk about like how can we apply this text to our own lives and our own organizing. And I like talked about that a lot throughout this episode already. But what do you all think? <laughs> I mean, well, as far as like any revolutionary struggle goes, it's a a clear way of laying out that how you, how you need to analyze the material conditions of your own own society that you wish to change and those of what you wish to change it from so it's kind of uh, i think that's really important when like thinking about what a revolution would look like and how you plan for a revolution it's not by having an idealistic appraisal of your strength versus their strength it's about getting down to kind of the nitty-gritty facts and understanding the real conditions of how people live and what people believe in in each separate uh, faction yeah I mean I know we're not there yet I for example I used to think the US Army was like invincible and <laughs> I think I, I, I'm, I'm getting there I'm getting to the point where it's like yeah, you see how inept they are, and you see how there are all these little cracks of possibility forming all the time. I guess with the rise of China as well, it's like there is a way forward. You just need to know where you are. And as Oni mentioned earlier, with the kind of you could capture eighty percent of a country, you still haven't taken the whole country. That was really that was really nice to hear because it's like no matter how bad things get, there's always a way forward, and it, it might look like it's getting worse and worse, but there is a way to kind of strategize, assess the situation, and find out where to go, how to go forward from there. And if you know that your goal is the right direction to be going in, um, then it's easier to understand why you're fighting. Like he mentioned uh, somewhere that we're not going to stop fighting until the Japanese don't have a single inch of China. And I feel like that I, I could apply that like conceptually to us. Like like we, we shouldn't stop fighting until until there's no territory owned by the oppressor. Because we know that the end goal is stopping oppression. So like you, you just cannot stop the fight at all until until you get there. So I mean I felt like it was we get all these like inspirational battle cries or whatever, but I felt like that was like a intellectual battle cry for me like you know <laughs> don't stop even until there's not a single inch left and uh the reason why is because we have a battle worth fighting very nicely put yeah and like uh everything can be looked at in greater detail and what now demonstrates here is 
how important it is to investigate the exact details of your own organizing conditions where it's like, you know, you take, for example, like the U.S. Army is invincible, but invincible isn't a binary thing. It's like, OK, they can win any one to one fight. But how long does it take them to win that? Um, how many fights will they have to win to do a particular war? So apparently ISIS is pretty materialist because they have continued fighting against the U.S. Army. Right. So it's like if the U.S. Army is invincible. Why have they totally eradicated ISIS yet? And then you break into those like specific details. And that's where you actually like figure out what is to be done. It's when you go into the very, very deep nitty gritty of what's going to determine the outcome. Yeah, I feel like a large part of the U.S. having such a large army is to appear to have such a large army. <laughs> no, but really, I mean, how many how many military bases do we have worldwide? Countless. Like mostly populated by like soldiers, families, and a bunch of people who do menial jobs. You know, I mean, just so we can have like a presence of intimidation across the world, so people don't fuck with us. Like, I mean, that's basically what it is. It honestly blew my fucking mind when I realized that other countries didn't have bases all over the world like that. It blew your mind? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's, that's just you guys. Yeah, it blew us. my mind yeah. when somebody was like, D is, there, is there a base in America for another country's military? And I was like, no, fuck no. Of course there isn't. But, like, why would there be? Why would any country have another country occupying them? I mean, really, it's absolutely nuts. It's not a logical thing that one country has military all over the world. Yeah, it's almost like they're protecting the global forces of capital or something. Right? Which is why I'm still, I don't know, I'm, I'm like, I support China, but also I feel like MLs are dogmatic about China at times, because China has military bases abroad, not anywhere near the extent to which America does, but China certainly invested in protecting its foreign capital investments. Yeah, don't they only have one, though? Am I wrong in that? It's just, I, I think it's just, there's one on the continent of Africa. I know that. I think it's, yeah, it's a very small amount of them. It's like somewhere from one to three. Okay, so it's one now. Is it going to be 10 and 15 years? And that's where I'm kind of like China agnostic about all of it. I mean, I, I the way I always kind of look at modern China is um, hopeful yet skeptical. I mean, right. I, I take the line of the Communist Party of China as it is. I trust them with their word as far as I can, but I'm also perpetually skeptical. Like you need to always constantly be on the lookout for ways that they are kind of coming up short from these uh, goals and deadlines that they set. So, and when they do come up short, you need to understand why and for what reason. Right. We should never have like uh, uncritical support of really any movement that's not, you know, until we get to full communism, whatever the hell. Like every movement is going to be a product of their material conditions. The only reason I, I make a point to generally um, side with China is because of who I'm talking to yeah. and because of where I am. I mean, I'm in the United States. I'm talking to American leftists. I mean, overall, um, you get the argument that you can't consider China as any, any uh, I don't know, as a communist state at all. And the main reason why I, I would generally argue against that is because of 
the idea that a struggle towards communism and um, the progression that they've made is absolutely evident of a proletarian struggle towards abolishing class struggle. So I can't in good faith um, echo most of the criticisms that I hear um, a lot of the time because they're propaganda, but also just because it's just not, it's never in the context of understanding the full it's always like well but i read this that china did that and so this is terrifying and china and i want to provide more support for the struggle of the chinese than than um furthering the critics yeah i really like the whole like all imperialism matters approach towards like trying to equate uh chinese imperialism so-and-so with american imperialism I mean, it is, it's pretty maddening when you, uh, when you have to listen to some of the stuff that particularly that, uh, social Democrats kind of come up with against China. And I mean, we, like, we all know that China acknowledges themselves that they are not currently a socialist society. Like that's part of the paradigm of, of their current program is that they acknowledge that the, the system they are currently operating under is not socialism. They are a they are run by the Socialist Party, but their structure is building towards socialism. And you like Right. You need to trust that. Just just looking at them and shouting liar, that's not real socialism. Nope, you're wrong. It, it's kind of right. flagrantly racist when you compare that to the, the way they, you know, talk about the Nordic systems. Absolutely. China has what a, a 90% uh, like public economy with a small amount of private enterprise. And then you go to these Nordic countries that are at best at very best 50, 50. And most of the time, you know, vastly more in favor of private enterprise. And, and these people have the nerve to say that like, Oh, this is the ideal system. And those folks, they're, they're just, uh, they're they're cheering for demagogues and and they love dictators and it's just like what where the fuck do you get off with that well yeah and arguably like china saying hey we're working towards socialism is a hell of a lot more socialist than saying hey we're done like for the nordic model yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly like no this is all the socialism we're done yeah they have no forward intent yeah there's no there's no intended forward motion on the nordic system but they still have the nerve to to lift that up as this idealized form. Yeah, but on that note, I also want people to think about, like, what are you saying in what context? Because the dialectics are everywhere. And even, like, what you choose to say at a specific moment counts. So I, I see MLs who will, like, dogmatically support China without the skepticism. And it's like, if I have the right take or the wrong take on China, it doesn't really matter because... Actually, like, China's pretty much set. Like, they're matched up against America now. Even if Western leftists don't properly support them, like, they're going to be fine without Westerners supporting them. Like, they've got their shit figured out. On the other hand, it's like, the Philippines is an active struggle, and the Communist Party in the Philippines shits on China. So it's like, you know, you don't even have to agree with their take on China, but it's like... Who do you think needs your help more right now? Communists like Maoist in the Philippines or a very established communist China? China good. <laughs> Mao good. <laughs> okay, I'm all out of discussion things. We can uh, close it out and go to the bonus section. Sounds good to me. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Proles of the Book Club. We are now on Twitter, at Proles Book Club. You can follow us for updates on our episodes, or if you'd like access to additional resources, feel free to contact us through there. If you'd like to join the book club, you can become a patron to our parent podcast, Proles of the Roundtable. Just check out patreon.com slash prolespod. For as little as one US dollar per month, you can join us in the Discord server, where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading. Big thank you to the Craigbot for helping us to record, and to Keenan for our intro theme. Join us next week where we'll be getting stuck back into Marx's capital with Chapter 10, The Working Day. Thanks again, and see you next time. <laughs>